I'm so excited about today's guest, Nicole Quinn, who is our only board member other than myself. We have not had a board meeting yet, but she's the partner at Lightspeed Ventures, who said yes, uh, who led our seed round and who has become a huge champion of Girlboss and someone I'm really excited to have here on Girlboss Radio. But first, I want to tell you about another one of our partners, who Lightspeed is actually also invested in, <laughs> Goop. Goop is a brand we all know for its great travel, food, beauty, style, work, and of course, wellness content. They deliver this via their newsletters, their weekly podcast. And last week, Gwyneth interviewed Oprah Winfrey for their first episode. I asked for an introduction. We'll see if it happens. Woo! And we know Goop has so many amazing products, like Goop by Juice Beauty, Goop Vitamins with names like I'm So Effing Tired, and a whole line of entirely natural fragrances, and of course a fashion label. But we're here today to talk about Goop Glow, which is their wellness product. It's a morning skin super powder. You drink it, it gives you nutrients, and it makes your skin glow. That's why it's called Goop Glow. It's packed with antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamins, and other good stuff, and it tastes good. So go online to goop.com slash girlboss to learn more about these and other Girlboss-approved Goop products. And if you're looking to take your morning ritual to the next level, the Goop by Juice Beauty Exfoliating Instant Facial does exactly what it sounds like it should. Basically eats all the dead stuff off your face so your skin glows even more. That's goop.com slash girlboss, G-O-O-P dot com slash girlboss. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Nicole Quinn has helped countless entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. I loved working with early stage companies, founders that were really passionate about what they were doing. And at the end of the day, these people were creating jobs, creating growth. And I wanted to be there to help them. As a partner at Lightspeed, Nicole focuses on funding early stage consumer tech companies. During her time at Lightspeed, she's invested in companies such as Zola, the largest online wedding registry, Dote, the virtual mall, and... Girl boss. Clearly, she's incredibly smart. And at the end of the day, women are the people who are driving popular culture. I mean, the majority of the companies I've invested in have female founders. So let's uh, make that continue. Today, we'll talk to Nicole about the qualities of a successful entrepreneur, the art of the perfect pitch. My biggest piece of advice is take risks. Think big. And this is my really candid advice to um, women founders. I typically find that women founders will come in and pitch and will be conservative in their projections of what the business can do. And 
this is something I would love to see change. And all about what's coming up next in consumer tech and where you guys should be starting businesses. But first, from the Girl Boss A team, Maggie Renshaw. Hello. What's up, Maggie? What's up? What's going on at Girl Boss this oh, week? Oh, boy. Well, continuing with our month of female celebration and collaboration. It's Women's History Month. It's Women's History yeah. Month. And we're doing a really cool segment feature called Hidden Her Stories. Mm -hmm. This series is about women that contributed to history who you probably didn't hear about in history class or in those textbooks. Um, so who? Like when, what are their names? Like so two of the gals that are being featured this week, one's uh, Toy Perina. She was a Native American war hero um, and she was best known or most well known for her revolt against the Spanish missionaries. You know I love a woman it... who leads a revolt. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. In good company. And then the other one that we featured this week, her name is Lucy Hicks Anderson. She was biologically male, but grew up wearing dresses and identifying as a woman. Um, her mother took her to the doctor, who actually advised them to bring her up as a girl. She was married twice. Wait, when was this? Cause this if was this... in 1945. Yeah, if it's 2000. 18, it's not as impressive. 1945? Right. Yeah. Wow. Before the term trans even existed. So she didn't really know what she was. She would just she just considered herself a woman. She grew up in L.A. in Ventura, discovered, and Ventura County discovered that she was biologically a male and tried her for perjury. Wow. The jury convicted her and gave her 10 years of probation. And then later in life, she was also convicted of fraud which landed her in jail. Wow. And also she was the first black trans pioneer. Wow. Yeah. And then there's someone who, a woman who did video games in the 70s? Yeah. Who? Her name is Donna Bailey. She was the one of the first women to design arcade games. One of the first women, cool. she uh, created the 70s game Centipede. Ooh. I know. <laughs> and she worked for Atari. So That's pretty cool. She's pretty badass for working in a still to this day considered a male-dominated field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just had a podcast on that last week. Oh, yeah. Tina. Well, thanks, Maggie. We'll, you'll be back next week? I will. Cool. Now, Nicole Quinn, partner at Lightspeed Ventures and weaver of entrepreneurial dreams. I'm originally from London, although I have a very confusing accent because I was born in London. My father is from Sydney, and now I've been in the U.S. for seven years. Okay, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize, because you were talking about Australia last night, and it sounded like you had an affinity for it, but I wasn't sure why, because I was pretty sure you had an English accent. <laughs> yeah, but I have a lot of family still there. In fact, my grandmother unfortunately passed away last week but we're celebrating her life because she got to 100 years old wow so strong australian Those genes are some good genes yeah <laughs> hopefully and a lot of like probably ability to hold your alcohol <laughs> between the two <laughs> that is the australian and yeah. english stereotype yeah <laughs> so did you spend your childhood in london yeah i did okay went to school there my father was uh, an entrepreneur, so I ended up, yes, going to school, but his business was all ups and downs. And when there were downs and he couldn't afford people to work for him, I ended up working for him at the age of about 10. Wow. So, What was your uh, first was job? Uh, I actually worked on a cash register even though the cash register was taller than I was at the time. So people had to peer over the cash register yeah. to see me uh, when he had a chain of physical pharmacies, which then he turned into online pharmacies in the wow. 1990s. Um, so that was my first job when I was 10. Wow. 
So online kind of runs in the family. I mean, it, 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 you, your family was like early internet people. I feel like that's kind of rare. That's true, but it was too early. It, yeah, uh, <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> Seems like it worked in the 1990s, and then soon, soon uh, did not work in the year 2000. Yeah. So, what were some of your other early jobs? Oh my gosh, Sophia! I literally did everything. I think uh, I was a hustler when I was younger, exactly yeah. like yourself. I would have like three jobs a year because I would have like a job that I would do after work, and then I would have a job that I did in the Easter holidays, a job that I would do in the summer holidays, and so it was like every restaurant in the small little town that I lived in, I had worked in at one point. Every shop, um, and. Ascot horse races in England. I would uh, do silver service waitressing there. I loved it because I was like, wow, you get really good tips here. I'm going to start working here more often. To be in venture capital, you have to be deeply analytic. Nicole has to know every aspect of the business she invests in. It takes a lot of focus and determination to research and analyze before investing. I asked Nicole to talk to us about her studies and how they prepared her for this fascinating career. Yeah, I did go to uh, university. I uh, read maths, or maths as we say in England. (laughs) Loved it. Did economics and math at uh, York and then uh, actually did my business degree out here at Stanford and hence fell in love with California. Wow, Stanford. That's a dream. Um, I tried to audit a class there and then I was like, "Uh, I don't live here. This is really hard. Um, But it's like such a beautiful campus. Nicole went on to spend eight years at Morgan Stanley, where she worked on the IPOs of Facebook, Groupon, and Pandora. No big deal, right? I asked her to tell us about her experience there. Was Morgan Stanley your first job out of college? How long were you there? I joined when I was 20 years old. We do a three-year degree in England rather than a four-year degree here. And I was there for nearly a decade. Like eight, nine years I was there. And you worked on taking companies public? Yeah, I moved around. So I did one year investment banking um, and realized I was working 18 hours a day in a role I was not passionate about. And so moved then into equity research and sales specifically for consumer companies, uh, which was interesting because it was uh, in sort of 2006 times, it was all brick and mortar. And then um, CPG companies, hence my sort of passion in the space right now. And then um, when e-commerce became a category, in sort of 2008 with ASOS, Net-A-Porter, Ukes. Um, Nasty gal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was exciting to be able to cover, you know, some of the public comps like ASOS during yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, and then eventually moved over to New York. Always just wanted to live in America. So I just kept saying to my boss, when can I move to America? When can I move to America? And um, so I moved over there, which was exciting times because Morgan Stanley did the, we did the Facebook and Groupon IPO then, and I loved it. But I've been doing angel investing on the side, and I realized that's what I was much more passionate about. Yeah. For the listeners that don't know, what is investment banking? Ah, yes. Okay, so I worked in the mergers and acquisitions team in investment banking. And so this is um, for public companies that are uh, listed on the stock exchange and private companies um, that want to either merge with one another or acquire a smaller company. And these are companies with billions of dollars as their sort of enterprise value. And they need a bank to be able to essentially do these large transactions uh, for them. And so that's when the um, banks will sort of step in and uh, help them through those transactions. Yeah, cool. 
And then the equity side, like specifically, what is like working on the equity side? What does that mean at some place like a Morgan Stanley? Yeah, so there's lots of different roles on the equity side. You essentially have equity and then you have fixed income, meaning the debt side of things. So I never have worked uh, in debt, always equities. So equity research is the person that meets the company a couple of years before their IPO and then writes the research reports at the IPO and then continues to write research reports on an ongoing basis about the company. And they'll have a recommendation. So you'll say, um, every bank has it differently, but we had buy, hold or sell recommendation on the stock. And then we'll have these bull, base and bear case scenarios. And so uh, one of my companies that I loved was Inditex, uh, which owns eight concepts. The largest one is Zara, uh, which I'm sure many of you have uh, shopped at. It's so great. And uh, I had a buy on that stock for, um, I mean, seven years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that essentially means that you think the stock can go up dramatically from where it is currently. And you tell hedge fund and long only, say, pension funds to buy the stock for those reasons. Nicole has a really great perspective on startup culture, having worked for one called Nutmeg, a London-based tech company that she helped complete funding. So I knew that I loved angel investing. I knew that I loved working with early stage companies, founders that were really passionate about what they were doing. And at the end of the day, these people were creating jobs, creating growth. And I wanted to be there to help them um, as an investor. Um, And someone said to me, a good friend, he... uh, Nick, he actually went to uh, Stanford Business School as well. Then he went on to start Nutmeg. He said, the best way to be an investor is to get some experience on the other side of the table as an entrepreneur or a founder or working in a stage company. As they say on the operations side. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly what Sophia is doing right now. And so I wanted to experience that operating side. So I joined Nutmeg, which was in the fintech space. It's an online private wealth management company. The equivalents here in the US are Wealthfront and Betterment, but they were based in Europe, in London, and worked there helping them on their fundraising, uh, on the marketing and strategy side of things. Um, Really enjoyed it, and it just confirmed to me that I definitely wanted to do investing. I then went on to start my own little uh, small company, uh, which I pitched to Lightspeed, and that's how I then ended up at Lightspeed. Wow. What was the, your pitch? <laughs> it was a wearable tech company. Uh, and I've been working on it uh, for a few months and realized that I needed to raise some money. And I met one of our partners when he uh, was doing a talk and ran up to him afterwards. was like, this is my company. Can I tell you about it? Let's book in a meeting. And so then uh, went to Lightspeed and talk to them about the company. And they said, have you ever considered venture capital? Your background's really interesting because you've been on the kind of more the larger side of equity, like different scale, like later, much later stage, but similar mechanics in some ways. Right. I mean, you know more than I do, but I'm guessing you are absolutely right. And it's interesting because, um, as you know, we recently invested in Goop. And um, for that one, it was... um, you know, they're doing so well. They've been around for 10 years. So it's a slightly later stage um, company. I know it started in uh, Gwyneth's kitchen back in the day in London. But so when we invest in later stage companies, it's great because I have that experience from 
working, as you said, Morgan Stanley, one of those big public companies and thinking about what it takes for them to be household brand names, what it takes for them to maybe list on a stock exchange and be a public company one day, um, what those investors are looking for too. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm going to want to know that at some point. So you're an investor, but you're also a woman and there's not a lot of women in venture capital, as we know. And I'm just so curious, have there been champions for you, men, women along the way? And what's it like being one of so few women in venture capital? It's interesting because people always think, if you're a woman in venture capital, do you have a, a role model who is also a woman? But my role model is Jeremy Liu, who you know at Lightspeed. And he's also a role model on this topic specifically as well, because when we go to uh, female-focused uh, conferences, there'll be you know 350 women in the room and four men. But Jeremy mm. will be one of those four men. Well, he believes in investing in popular culture. And at the end of the day, women are the people who are driving popular culture. Mm-hmm. And so when he put the first money on Snapchat back in the day, it was because he could see that the engagement of this product amongst young women that then everybody wants to copy um, was extremely strong. And they had you know, three quarters of their consumer base as young women. And they were just engaging and loving the product. And so as a result, he thinks, you know, believes that authenticity is it is key. And so you often get these really strong female founders, like yourself, Sophia, who are starting these awesome businesses with women as your customer. And so it's something that we, you know, not just talk about and not just go to conferences, but a third of the companies that Jeremy's invested in are... Um, have female CEOs and founders. So The Honest Company, now Girlboss, mm-hmm. um, Style Seat, Task Rabbit. Um, here the list goes on. Oh, I didn't know that about Task Rabbit. Yes, oh. female founder, and then um, they brought in a CEO later, also a really strong woman, Stacey. So that's something that we believe at Lightspeed, and I personally do. I mean, the majority mm-hmm. of the companies I've invested in have female founders. Yeah. So let's uh, make that continue. Tell me some of the companies that Lightspeed has invested in, because it's pretty impressive. Lightspeed, I believe, were in 25% of all technology IPOs last year wow. in the States. So uh, last year we had IPOs for Nutanix. Uh, we had the acquisition for uh, AppDynamics. We had the IPO for MuleSoft. And on the consumer side... Snapchat, Stitch Fix. It was a really exciting year. Bonobos, right? So, yeah, we had the acquisition of Bonobos by Walmart. Yeah. Definitely a lot of uh, M&A and IPOs last year. And my partners have done an incredible job in investing in those great companies. In addition to that, we invested in Nest um, back in the day. The Honest Company. Some of my companies uh, are Girlboss, Goop. Zola, the wedding registry business, Daily Harvest, um, which is a frozen food business on subscription. They've actually advertised on the podcast. I've read ads about nice cream, which sounds really good. It's so good. Really? Yeah. I think we actually have some in the freezer. I just need to pull it out. You do. I actually checked your freezer. You do (laughs) have it in there. You've already checked the freezer since you've been here? (laughs) I have to for Daily Harvest. (laughs) And um, as someone who can't eat dairy, I love their ice cream so much. It's amazing. We'll be back with more of Nicole Quinn in a minute. But first, if you're inspired by this episode and planning to get out there and ask people to invest in your big idea, you probably want to look the part. 
enter Stitch Fix. Many of us just suck at shopping. A lot of us don't want to leave our houses anymore. We're used to watching the, our movies at home and getting our food delivered to us if you live in, I mean, not everybody is able to do that. Millennials have pioneered the sharing economy and Stitch Fix is really at the forefront of that from an apparel perspective. If you go to stitchfix.com, you'll be prompted to fill out a style profile online and they'll send clothes, shoes, and accessories picked just for you in your size for your lifestyle, for your budget, and of course, things that you're gonna like. Every box contains five items you can try at home, and then you only pay for what you keep. So get started now at stitchfix.com slash girlboss, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five, item, all five items in your box. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X.com slash girlboss to try Stitch Fix today. Stitchfix.com slash girlboss. And if you're building your online business, you need to be smart about spending and shipping. That's why we always tell you about ShipStation, mm -hmm. our longest standing supporter of Girlboss Radio at this point. And someone who renews their ad reads on Girlboss Radio, honestly, because our audience is going to ShipStation, actually finding it useful and staying a member of their platform. Like that's how these things work. So we know that ShipStation works for our audience. If you're shipping anything online, if you sell anything online, ShipStation is the platform for you. So ShipStation pulls in all of your orders from any number of platforms, Squarespace, we're using it with Squarespace, mm -hmm. Etsy, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Shopify, and over 75 other popular selling channels. And you can print labels from UPS, FedEx. It's so easy. They're very mobile friendly. And right now you can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use our promo code GIRLBOSS. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's S-H-I-P-S-T-A-T-I-O-N.com. Enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation. Make ship happen. And now back to Nicole Quinn. There's so many women listening to this podcast who want to understand how to raise money, who may be raising money, who may not know how to get to somebody like you. How do how does someone get a meeting with a partner at Lightspeed or any other venture capital firm? Like, what is it? Is it relationships? Can you cold email people? Like, what's the best way to just get your foot in the door? So you can do all of those things, but I'm definitely going to let you guys in with the secret of what's the most effective routes. So there's different investors for each individual stage. And so for venture capitalists, um, there are specific seed stage funds that I would suggest speaking to there. And then there's specific uh, later stage funds, which means sort of series C and beyond after you've uh, your company's been around for a few years. And Lightspeed actually does everything from seed to Series D. And uh, I think it's important to target the specific investors for those individual stages. So first, I'd say, um, if you've just come up with the idea or recently launched the company, then the first stage of investors that you want to be speaking to are angel investors. And maybe these are people that are in your network or people who you follow and you feel that they care deeply about the subject that you are building your company in. And so those angels also tend to have good networks as well. So you get a few angels in at that early round. Maybe it's a friend's family 
and uh, and angel round. And then they will hopefully make recommendations to you for which seed stage uh, investors you should be speaking to. Or maybe you have friends uh, who are also starting companies and they'll make recommendations to you to um, angels and then seed stage VCs and then full Series A, Series B stage VCs after that. And to your point about cold emails, you can cold email. It is definitely not the most effective way. Um, I think this business is one that's very much built on reputation and relationships. And so I would say leverage every relationship that you have. If you go to a conference, speak to people and uh, make sure you leave every event with three new contacts and then ask those, every meeting you go to, ask them if there's anyone else they can put you in touch with. Um, And people will be like, yes, actually, I really want to introduce you to the seed stage VC because that's the stage you're at with your company right now and they would be a perfect fit for you. Yeah. So the first money is often kind of called pre-seed, right? Like it's before a seed round and what is that? I mean, those are, that's like largely friends and family. Like do people do that via convertible note? Like what is a convertible note? (laughs) Uh, So yes, people do it uh, as friends and family rounds, but I am very cognizant of the fact that not everybody has wealthy friends and family. Mm -hmm. And so that route is not open to everybody and that's okay too. Because if you are exceptional as I'm sure you are, and if you're building a great product, as I'm sure you are, then you should have the opportunity to be able to reach out to high net worth individuals. And so those tend to be angels. Um, Some angels then set up their own uh, funds, but most of them are just uh, individuals. And then your question about a convertible note. So there's different ways of valuing a company. And the later stage rounds will typically be priced rounds. And so you'll say, okay, I'm raising $10 million and the valuation is a $50 million pre. Uh, so it's That's a what we're going to do together in like six months, right? <laughs> we just did this on the uh, seed <laughs> rounds. And uh, that was a priced round, actually, interestingly. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of seed rounds are convertible notes. We did that uh, as a priced round. And um, convertible notes essentially are you investing um, in um, the company, but then the note, uh, the, the value will essentially, sorry, the investment will convert at the next round, typically at a discount to the next round's valuation. So you don't price it. They just come in and put a certain amount of dollars in and then when the company is priced, maybe at a seed stage or A. I actually find convertible notes, yeah, tough to articulate. Aren't they? But they're like, they're really simple, like in theory. Exactly. You're basically deferring how much of the company someone's buying for the dollars they're putting in by delaying the valuation. So someone puts 500 grand in. Like you don't, they don't know how much of the company they own until hopefully you're successful in raising a series A. And if you're not successful, there's protections that can come into play for. Yes, exactly. That will all be in the terms. You're absolutely right. And typically you'll see a convertible note uh, done at, say, a 30% discount to the next round. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you'll be better off from a valuation perspective investing in that convertible note rather than at the next round because of that discount you get. So that's worth taking into consideration. Yeah. And there's a difference between institutional investors. Like I've been out to tons of people, whether it's like WME or UTA or like angel investors, these people who like 
put money into companies, but they don't have people like you and they don't have the same kind of governance that uh, that a real venture capital firm has. And so a lot of these people, when I was going out, were saying, you need an institutional to lead this. Like, we don't, we just like, we follow on, like, we look to someone like Lightspeed to like set the to say like this is a good investment because they're going to go do the diligence they have more people working for them they can stay closer to the company because they have more resources yeah what is the difference between an institutional investor and someone who like might pile on once you have that kind of institutional investor in place yeah it's a good question so at lightspeed we very much are an institutional investor as you say um and that means that we are extremely active you know, especially with our time uh, and with our resources. And so for me, maybe that that is actually just anything that you as the founder want from your investor. So if you really need help with hiring, then that is how uh, the institutional investor should be helping you. Maybe they will help pay for a headhunting firm for you. Maybe they have an in-house um, hiring team. At Lightspeed, we actually have two separate teams of Oh, cool. Uh, I need to like get acquainted with these people. <laughs> it's, recruiting is so much work. Yeah, it actually can be a full-time job for a founder. Yeah. And so I think that that's... Um, really important and uh, we have an executive team that I should introduce you to and we also have a team which helps hire positions everything below executives as well we can make introductions to any of these areas oh. if hiring is a priority for you yeah. as it is for most early stage companies we need a project manager stat I should talk to these guys so yeah so we can help with hiring we can also help with PR and marketing so we have a PR marketing team as well um, and then at the end of the day I think your VC should be you're a sounding board and just always there for you whenever you need to speak about uh, whatever it is that's currently going on in the company. And so I just believe that institutional investors have to be extremely active. And then, as you say, the CAAs and UTAs can then work with you and we love to work with them, mm -hmm. but you will be the largest check in for that amount. Mm -hmm. And then what's a strategic investor? Because that word gets thrown around a lot. My advice is always bring in strategic investors um, a little bit later and they typically tend to be corporates who can really help you in terms of maybe your business is working with brands as it very much is for Girlboss um, and maybe you think there is one specific strategic who will be able to help me heads and shoulders above every other company and I want to have a true partnership with them and yes maybe that means we partner in terms of working together and doing business with one another mm -hmm. but you also want to take that relationship to the next level and have them invest in your company so that they have actual skin in the game um, and really want to see you succeed but you've got to be very careful to make sure that that one or maybe one or two strategic investors are the companies that you want to align yourself with going forward. Because mm -hmm. remember, if you're starting a company, you're starting a company for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would say take your time, take a few years to decide who you want those strategic partners to be before bringing them on board. Yeah. Institutional investors are always aligned with you. And this happened in retail. I don't hear as much about it in media or what we're doing in technology, where if you have a strategic investor, like say ASOS invested in Nasty Gal, for example, which never happened, but if ASOS had invested in Nasty Gal, it would have possibly scared away Nordstrom exactly. or Target or 
anyone who could have acquired Amazon, who could have acquired us. Is that true across all industries? I only cover the consumer space, and that is true in most of the areas that I look at. So I agree with you. If you bring in a strategic in an early stage round, um, then it does make other companies or strategics question because they might think, hey, I would love to acquire X company. Say, you know, we can actually just discuss Nasty Girl. Mm -hmm. I would love to acquire Nasty Girl. But wait a second, ASOS have invested and they haven't given an acquisition offer. So what do they know about the company given they have this inside information into the Mm -hmm. company? Are they going to get in the way? You know, how in bed are they together? Exactly. All of those things are definitely question marks to them. And so sometimes it's just simpler to take institutional money, um, and not uh, have the strategic money so early on. Yeah. So who you involve in your business can definitely determine who gets involved next. So it's really important to choose. Absolutely. You should feel like you have something of value where you're letting people in and they have to be qualified in some way rather than taking any money that comes your way. Yes. Be very picky on it. When you're investing in a business, you're not only betting on the business, you're also investing in the people that are creating the business. I asked Nicole to talk to us about what personality traits make a great entrepreneur. For me, in an early stage company, the founder is so important. Um, So it is somebody who has real vision for what they want to build, which Sophia clearly has with Girlboss. It's someone who maybe has experience, especially relevant experience, um, so has spent time and yeah, has spent time in an industry, has been building up relationships in that industry, and also somebody who has the ability to be able to hire a strong team. We always believe A players hire A players. If you have a B player, then mm-hmm. they tend to hire C and D players. Uh, that's definitely not what you want for a company. If you, I mean, <laughs> for all the tens of thousands of people at Facebook, my view is that they're all A players, and that's because they have never dropped the quality bar. Mm-hmm. They always view anyone they bring in as an A player, and then it means that they'd continue to hire A players. And so when we met you, we thought you were somebody who it made sense that you had really strong executives here because you are strong yourself, so you were able to we're hire so really strong We're so lucky to have execs. Ali, uh, who's our president, and Neha, who's our editor-in-chief and COO, and they've brought on incredible, talented people that they've worked with in the past who have been A players in similar companies. We're doing something new, obviously, but the fact that they've worked together is also like a huge benefit that we don't have to learn a new language of what, how do we work together, how do we communicate, what are best practices. These guys worked at Refinery29 together, and other companies. So yeah, um, it's, this is new for me to have a team that's worked together before. And it, I think it's like, it, it kind of fast tracks your, like the onboarding experience or people getting up to speed because they've already worked together. Yeah. It's so true. That's a hard thing to do. Most people will be able to hire, you know, multiple people that came from the same company, but, um, we're lucky in that way. You are. And so I would say a strong founder, strong team. Um, and then in addition to that, we generally love to see some some numbers, some traction. Um, and that is important to us, not just um, because of the absolute numbers, but more so we can 
understand how any customers you have are engaging with the product. So we can see what the repeat usage is like, um, what the engagement um, of the product is on an ongoing basis. Because my view is, I always focus on, could something become a brand? Is it a brand today? Could it become a brand in the future? And some of the leading indicators for that are topics such as is this um, a product that is resonating with customers, i.e. once they buy it, are they coming back and buying it again? Or if they're looking at your content on Girlboss, are they then coming back and looking at the content again? What is the word of mouth like? Are they telling their friends about it? Because not only do they love it for themselves, they want to share it with others. Um, These are all some of the things we look at to show us whether a brand is being built and whether people love a product and can't live without a product. And so those are really important things for us uh, in the early days. And uh, when someone's doing their pitch, I always say maximize the wow moments, minimize the drop moments. And wow moments are topics like these are my advisors and I have really relevant, really impressive advisors Um, or these were my earlier investors and equally impressive people there. These are my margins. You know, like a drop moment could be everything in the presentation is wonderful, but then you get onto your margins and uh, we find out that it's only like 20% margins. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so it's uh, all about that when we are uh, meeting companies and going through the pitch deck in the early days. What are the elements of a pitch? You know, I'm I'm new at this because... When I raised the first money into Nasty Gal, I had been building it like bootstrap profitably, cash, you know, cash flow positive for like years before I ever talked to investors. And so the first money in was out of a growth fund, which was Index's growth fund, and was $40 million in 2012. So it was like, and, and it was just like this freak thing that like I had done what I had done the way I'd done it with no debt and like no credit cards and no investors, like kind of unheard of. So I didn't really have to go pitch like they wanted in. And this has been really different because it's like, you know, it's a new company. It's a new idea. It's not something where I can sell a few dresses and then have a little bit more money and then sell a few dresses. It's like we have to pay to put on a conference before our brand partners like pay us for it you know and ticket sales hardly even begin to cover the girl boss rallies so it's a really different business from a cash flow perspective for me um and being able to you know we have to raise money early um to get it off the ground and having these meetings you know i I heard a few times like you're your pitch is weak. <laughs> and I just like, I was just talking to people like it was a regular conversation. I di- didn't, I wasn't like super buttoned up. I was like, look, I went on a book tour and saw these girls like exchanging business cards. Like clearly there's like, I don't know, a market for that. <laughs> it wasn't as, it wasn't, it's, it evolved over, over time and I think improved. Um, and it's gotten a lot better since then, but I'm still learning. So for our listeners, what are the elements of a pitch? So many interesting things um, in what you just said there, Sevilla. First of all, I would say not every business um, needs investors uh, or needs venture capital investment. So if your business is highly profitable, then you don't need to raise money. However, there's a lot of really fast-growing businesses that are focused on growth and fortunately – there's investors out there to invest in those companies um, to take it all the way until time that uh, 
until it's the right point f- to think about monetization. And so that's exactly you, where we step in. Yeah, like when you walk into a room with investors, like what do you do? Like not you, but like when an entrepreneur walks into a room with investors, what should they be saying? Okay, so I speak at a lot of female-focused conferences and you'll see in my questions uh, alongside this podcast that um, my biggest piece of advice is take risks, think big. Because, and this is my really candid advice to um, women founders, I typically find that women founders will come in and pitch and will be conservative in their projections of what the business can do. And this is something I would love to see change um, because I see founders come in and say, okay, this is what we think we'll do over the next six months, maybe a year. Whereas male founders will come in and give me their five-year projection horizon. And one of my favorite, favorite uh, pitches, a male founder, um, started with the slide, my 100-year plan. Wow. And This is how I think great people do think. They think um, this is my vision and we're going to make this, we're going to make this huge. Mm -hmm. And this was something special, you know, that I thought about Girlboss when I remember standing in your kitchen drinking tea with you Mm -hmm. and um, thinking that we are really riding on an exciting wave here of female empowerment and long let it continue and never stop. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is really exciting and needs to exist and needs to have a founder like you create this and so it's just really special and so when you go into a room with investors I think it's important to show what is really special and unique about your business Um, because we as investors are always asking okay why this founder Um, so tell me why you are the person to do it we're asking why this product so tell me why this product needs to exist And we're also asking, why now? Why hasn't it existed before? Um, Why does it need to exist now? And so I'm excited to hear from founders the answer to that question as well. Mm -hmm. Um, For later stage companies, uh, quite often the numbers do the talking. But in the early days, we really need to hear what's special from you. Mm -hmm. So we all heard Frances McDormand talk about inclusion writers at the Academy Awards and Prior to that, just a few months ago, after you guys invested, you asked me to sign something. I wasn't required to sign it, but it was kind of an obvious for me. Tell me about the letter that you asked your founders to sign and why. Yeah, thank you for asking about this, Sphere, because this is something that is really important to um, everyone at Lightspeed. So we've uh, put together a diversity and inclusion letter, and we are asking each and every one of our portfolio companies, especially the new portfolio companies uh, that we work with, to sign this letter, which um, asks them to consider for every single role in the company that they hire for and every single board member that they bring on board for them to interview, consider a person of an underrepresented group. And for me, we learn, grow and mature through having people around us with different perspectives and diversity really brings that different thought. Richness, right? It really does. 
Yeah, I'm learning that. Um, we have such a diversity of like styles here and then also ethnic diversity, not as much gender diversity. We have one dude here. It's <laughs> um, it's it's really cool to just see the different ways that people work together and the varieties of backgrounds that kind of coalesce into something a lot more dynamic than a bunch of white guys in a room together. So you have been on a travel tear Right. Tell me you were in London. You're heading to Austin. When? Today? Tomorrow? Friday. Friday. I mean, you're all over the place. You're in San Francisco. You're in New York. You're in London. You're in Austin. You're in L.A. How do you make a relationship work? How did you end up getting engaged? A lot of women, it's just like, and there's actually studies where like the more a woman's career progresses, if it's like above, if it's like faster than her partners, they end in like more divorce, things like that. I don't want to think about it. Um, but like, how do you make it work with all of your travel and, uh, your huge job? Wow. Such a good question. Um, and yes, I do travel a lot because I believe there are exciting consumer companies all across America, all across the world. And so I am never afraid to jump on a plane and go and see a great company. So I definitely have to put that first, um, and be very willing to travel the way that we uh, make it work is my fiance Malcolm is first of all my rock he is just always there for me and very understanding and loves the fact that um, I really prioritize work and he actually sometimes comes on my um, business trips with me which is cool. exciting cool. Um, so we're as Sophia mentioned going to Austin this weekend um, for uh, a tech conference South by Southwest I guess it's music, film, and tech. Yeah, everything. Um, and he's like, well, great. I will just come with you. Like, there are, I, there are many things that I will be able to get out of that as well. So we can just go to this together. So that'll be a great weekend That's in nice. Austin. And I think it's just being understanding of one another's time um, and FaceTiming a lot when you're uh, on the road. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, sort of having, like, love and understanding um, and patience uh, with one another. Mm-hmm. And it's not the worst to miss one another once in a while. I think it can be a gift to have time apart, which people don't really think about enough. I, I 100% agree with that. I actually strongly believe that absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's not a bad thing, but that's just the optimist in me. Two more questions. These are questions that I ask everybody that comes on Girl Boss Radio. The first one is, what was your most recent girl boss moment? So a girl boss moment can be any time in the last week where you felt like you were in charge of your life. You could have gotten a blowout. You could have made time for self-care. You could have closed a deal that you're like makes you feel like, holy shit, I'm on top of my career. What was your most recent girl boss moment, Nikki? That was definitely this Monday morning. I was driving into the office. And I had a female founder coming in to present to my entire partnership um, and a company I was really excited about. There was um, a founder later on that day that I was giving a term sheet to. And then I was interviewing um, a role model of mine, Selena Tabakawala, um, a female engineer, in front of 100 female engineers engineering students um, for an event that I had put on for our portfolio companies in San Francisco to help them hire uh, women engineers. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have a lot 
ahead of me today. Um, there were definitely a lot of different types of emotions, but I was like, no, I've got this. Deep breathe. You've got this. Stay calm. And it was a great day. That's so great. I love those days where you wake up and you're like, holy shit, how am I going to do this? And then somehow you don't end up feeling like you're under the undertow, just stuck with the undertow. What does success mean to you? Reputation. And that for me is my reputation with the founders that I invest in. Um, I always want to be a I always want to be a great sounding board. I want to be a trusted resource to every founder that I'm working with. Um, I want to have a great reputation as a top investor um, who has invested in great companies and really made a difference um, to those founders and to society through building big companies. Um, reputation to my partners at work, reputation to my fiance and future children. Um, and then also reputation just in terms of like how I treat every single person I interact with in life. So I want to be respectful to the Uber driver, the uh, person in the coffee shop, like every single person I interact with in this world. For me personally, I just want uh, for them to think of me well um, as I think of them. And so reputation for me, it is. Thank you so much for coming on Girl Boss Radio. This has been such a pleasure. One of my favorite interviews, I think. There's so much to learn here. I am very glad. This was a real pleasure. Yeah. Sophia, thank you so thank much. You. We are such happy investors in uh, Girl Boss. Thanks. We admire oh my you. gosh, we have so much to prove. Thank you guys so much for joining us in another episode of Girl Boss Radio. Subscribe, tell your friends, and when you subscribe, you can leave a review if you like this show. And check out Self Service, our second podcast ever, part of our podcast network, which is also called Girl Boss Radio. There will be more shows on this network. It is a very exciting time for us. But our second show is called Self Service with Jericho Mandibur. Um, and she hosts it's it's a self-care podcast and it drops on Sunday, so subscribe. We hope to see you guys at the Girl Boss Rally in April, April 28th. You can register at girlbossrally.com. 